Listen to the best of the church's music for the Epiphany season at LutheranPublicRadio.org. Sacred music for the Epiphany season, 24-7. LutheranPublicRadio.org. What is different about what many have called the war on reality? People who believe in everyday life that they can create their own reality, that if they believe themselves to be a woman when they're a man, they are a woman, existentially, ontologically a woman, despite all of the scientific evidence, despite, well, the unreality and perhaps the insanity of Thinking this, what's different about that from the previous fronts we've had to fight in the culture war? Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Joining us to talk about the progressive assault on moral reality, Dr. James Wood. He's Assistant Professor of Ministry at Redeemer University in Ancaster, Ontario, Canada, author of a recent column for World News Group titled The Battle We Face. Today's conflicts are not about the supernatural, but the natural. Dr. Wood, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to join you. Why were you recently accused of being a fundamentalist? <laughs> yeah, it's a little complicated. So give a little background here. That was a reference to the fact that many assume that I'm the unnamed target in Russell Moore's recent book as the fundamentalist Calvinist who critiqued winsomeness. And I hope we don't have to do too much on the winsomeness wars today, but that most people assume that was me, even though I wasn't explicitly named. Most reviewers I've seen think that I was the target of his jab. And I can't read his mind whether I was or what he means by that term, but I imagine he's probably operating off of the distinction between fundamentalists and evangelicals from the mid-20th century, led by the likes of Carl Henry and Billy Graham. And you could kind of summarize the distinction between an evangelical and a fundamentalist as, you know, David Dockery says, you know, evangelical is someone who likes Billy Graham, fundamentalist who's someone who thinks Billy Graham's an apostate, which he's kind of playing off Marsden's pithy characterization where he says, yeah, fundamentalist is an evangelical is angry about something. And that during the 1950s and 60s, the simplest and loose way to define an evangelical is anyone who likes Billy Graham. But usually I think the term fundamentalist usually has connotations of anti-intellectualism and, and uh, strong separationism, which I hope doesn't really define me and that's not how people would characterize me. But anyway, I mentioned Marsden there. He's the leading figure, the leading historian of the original form of what came to be called fundamentalism, which is a, you know, ties it to a specific history and a specific set of views. And I am concerned with that term generally is when it's untethered from that, I think it just becomes an ambiguous dismissive epithet, a term of abuse, I think, to characterize your opposition as unreasonable and unworthy of charitable engagement. As Al Plantinga says, uh, the full meaning of the term fundamentalist can often be a stupid low life whose theological opinions are considerably to the right of mine. Well, maybe that's what he thought about me as he read about me online or whatever. But to be honest, I have no grudge against Moore and didn't write my piece as a counter to him, but I took the label that was offered as an opportunity to reflect on the term and its relevance to our contemporary battles and how they reflect and differ from the battles that were waged by the original fundamentalists. So in that vein, to set some context, what was the fundamentalist versus modernist debate? Yeah, fundamentalism, I mean, this all emerges in the late 19th, early 20th century. Fundamentalists are those who responded with the, what they saw as the incursion of modernism on the church and American Christianity. 
and especially around issues of you know trying to make uh, Christianity more palatable to cohere with modern reason and particularly science and evolution. George Marsden, that, that historian I mentioned earlier, he defined fundamentalism as militantly anti-modernist American evangelicalism, I and mean, it was a kind of a loose group of co-belligerents, you know, united by this opposition to modernist attempts to bring Christianity more in line with the modern world. Well, as I said, it kind of, the center of the debates were around especially science and evolution. And so there's three kind of key dates when I think about that debate. I'll just briefly mention them. 1910 is when a group of concerned laymen put together a bunch of literature that would concisely address these issues that they saw fa- facing the church. And they wanted to hand out these pamphlets to you know, every minister, theology student, Sunday school teacher. And the fundamental, that there are five of them, they were focused on what I said, the supernatural teaching for the most part, things like the virgin birth of Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ, Christ's miracles and things like that. And it was met with fierce opposition by these modernists that they were opposing. And so the next date is 1922. New York pastor Harry Emerson Fosdick delivers the sermon, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? And this kind of escalated the accusations against the fundamentalists and it raised the battle to new stakes by saying, you know, his argument was that theological liberalism should be normative in American Protestantism, that Christians should be able to find compatibility between faith and modern science. And then the, the final date is 1925, the Scopes famous monkey trial, which focused on the teaching of evolution and Darwinism in public schools. And ultimately, the fundamentalist party did win that trial, but they, what Marsden says, that they lost the ultimate cultural war. They were pushed to the margins the, in society and, and incre- increasingly became combative. And this kind of launches what Marsden says is the kind of contemporary form of the culture wars. That's the, the original battle. You say that today's debate is not about Christianity's supernatural dogmas, but about Christianity's teaching about natural realities. What do you mean by that? Yeah, yeah. As you could see from the the last question, the last answer, the fundamentals originally were in response to attacks on traditional Christianity from a scientific or rationalist angle. You know, teachings like about the virgin birth or miracles. These didn't seem to comport well with with modern scientific modes of inquiry. They seemed to offend enlightened reason. This doesn't map well onto the primary attacks on Christianity today. I don't believe today the field of battle is not over such supernatural truths that cannot be understood apart from supernatural revelation. It isn't over those teachings that enlightened rationalists castigate as irrational. No, today we are attacked not as imbeciles, but as bigots. And bigots because we defend truths about the human person and their relationship to their bodies and our body's relationship to sex. So things like sexual relations and how they should be confined to marriage, how marriage itself should be bound to sexual complementarity, because marriage also and sexual relations are fundamentally ordered at some level to procreation but also that sex itself is inextricably bound to gender, so biology matters. These are things that pertain to what I say is natural or creational realities. But also, they are confirmed and elucidated by scriptural revelation, but they're also available to reason from the other book of God's revelation, the book of nature. And in fact, as we continue to see, science continues to confirm these realities uh, against uh, the uh, machinations of our opponents, right? And it really takes... I think, a form of kind of Gnostic ideology, a type of anti-material fideism to deny these truths. But those are the truths that I think that are denied and attacked today. You say that uh, Christianity is the last line of defense for reality. What do you mean by that? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's obviously being a little provocative, but I, I think maybe a way to get into that is maybe you could contrast reality to its great opponent in the late modern world, which is ideology. Ideologists attempt to impose their views on the world a world that does not easily conform to their visions. 
It's what Andrew Willard Jones calls machines of thought, driven by those who think that they can master their surroundings by manipulating them, by rewriting reality. Thus, the world is just this inert stuff, doesn't have any mysterious being and depth that must be honored and received. Rather, it's just stuff that can be manipulated by our wills. This is what many scholars like Martin Heidegger or Jacques Ellul refer to as technique, the technological approach to the world. And it takes, I think, different expressions in the different stages of modernity. Earlier, there was great effort exerted uh, and enthusiastic ex expectations for societal and worldwide transformation, the myth of progress, right? But these large-scale ambitions have been largely deflated as a result of the great wars of the 20th century and present concerns about the climate. But that ideological energy has turned more personal. It's about identity, and this leads to the identitarians that I talked about. These are those people who define themselves and seek to project that onto the world, especially around issues of sex and gender. New forms of relations and what's called gender performance are projected every day without regard for either traditional modes or nature itself, which traditions try to honor, preserve, and promulgate. These progressive sexual identitarians, I call them, reject all such restrictions. Nothing above or beyond the naked will can define oneself. And I mentioned here, and I'd like to mention again very briefly, the French philosopher Remy Brague, who defines what he calls the modern project as the endless attempt to progressively emancipate humanity from all that purports to stand above it. So beginning with got to reject God, got to reject law, nature, and now even our bodies. On the issues under discussion, issues that are ripping, I think, society apart and creating massive confusion for especially many young folks, traditional Christians are really the only clear group resisting the waves and saying that nature, that bodies matter. They are realities received that define us in important respects. And I'll just mention one other person here to answer this question, to conclude, is the work of on gender, the work of Abigail Favalli, a very important work, where she contrasts what she calls the gender paradigm versus the genesis paradigm. The gender paradigm is, you know, that gender is a state of mind rather than a bodily reality and that there's no givenness to our human nature. And, you know, that we forge and determine our own identities in ways that may or may not correspond to our bodily reality. So someone can change their gender and all of those things. If the body doesn't correspond to one's self-understanding, then it's the body that has to change to match what one wills or what imagines in one, one's mind, rather than the mind changing to match the body. That's the gender paradigm. And that's opposed to what she calls the genesis or the biblical paradigm, which honors nature because it also recognizes biological reality. So I think she's very helpful in this. She defines a woman as the kind of human being whose body is organized according to the potential to gestate new life, i.e. motherhood. And a man is the kind of human being whose body is organized according to the potential for fatherhood. Few, I think, other than traditional Christians, are as bold about standing up to defend these truths today. So I think we're the ones, the last kind of defense of reality in our context. Who was 19th century nihilist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, and what do today's progressive sexual identitarians have in common with his way of thinking? Nietzsche is the great modern opponent of Christianity, and he's very articulate. He's worth dealing with. He accused Christianity of being against life, like holding humanity back from greatness, especially in its moral teachings. So to be unleashed, to fully flourish, to exert our unbound will on the world, Nietzsche argued we need to be freed from Christianity and its moral code. He described this as living beyond good and evil and thus kind of the need to quote-unquote kill God. To release human potential, we need relativism. The traditional moral teaching that Christianity espouses is particularly targeted as intractable in its commitment to objective morality. It says no to many things that we might desire. Well, I think similar, progressive sexual and identitarians view traditional moral teaching as a problem to their unbound 
potential to their full actualization. It is quote-unquote repressive. And this I wasn't able to explore in my piece, but I think this would bring my arguments kind of closely to Italian philosopher Augusto de Noce and his analysis of William Reich. I'm not going to go into that, but I think he'd argue something very similar. But like Nietzsche, because Christian moral teaching is apparently opposed to their unbound will and self-actualization, these identitarians want to rewrite the code. And I think it's, that's the similarity between them. Dr. James Wood is our guest. We're talking about the progressive assault on moral reality. How do today's progressives differ from Friedrich Nietzsche? Here's an easy way for you to help us cast ChristNet on the internet. Subscribe, rate, and review the Issues Etc. podcast with your podcast provider. Type Issues Etc. in your podcast provider, hit the subscription button, and leave us a five-star review. This will make it easier for other podcast listeners to find Issues Etc. Help us reach more listeners in 2024. Subscribe, rate, and review Issues Etc. today. We know that you want to build your family on the right foundation from the very start, the foundation of Jesus Christ. Concordia Publishing House offers more than 8,000 products for churches, schools, and homes, dedicated customer service, and an experienced staff to help you focus on what matters most. Click to connect at cph.org. Concordia Publishing House, listening, responding, providing for God's people. Concordia Publishing House, cph.org. Defending the faith, teaching the truth. You're listening to Issues Etc. This is Pastor Matthew Harrison, President of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. The LCMS operates the second largest parochial school system in the United States. What can you expect from a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod school? There's one race, the human race. And Jesus died for the sins of every man, woman, and child from every land and every nation. Life begins at conception. All life is precious from womb to tomb. And every student, parent, and teacher is created in the very image of God. There's right and wrong, and we know which is which from the Ten Commandments. There are only two sexes, male and female, He created them. Marriage is the lifelong union of one man and one woman, There's such a thing as objective, absolute truth, and it's found in the person and work of Jesus Christ and His Word. To find a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod school near you, visit lcms.org slash schools. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. We're talking about the progressive assault on moral reality. Dr. James Wood is our guest. He's author of a recent column for World News Group titled The Battle We Face. Today's conflicts are not about the supernatural, but the natural. Dr. Wood, before the break, you were comparing the uh, approach of today's progressives with that of 19th century nihilist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. How do progressives today differ from Nietzsche? Yeah, I think one of the best ways to see the difference is what I did in the essay, is starting with how both attack traditional Christianity for its relationship to the quote-unquote weak. Nietzsche thinks that Christianity is bad for humanity and society because of its concern for the weak. This is what made society weak and held back the strong from doing what's required to be great, to fully live into the greatness that humanity 
is destined for. The progressive sexual identitarians think Christianity is not responsive enough to those deemed weak and marginalized. It doesn't cave to their demands to affirm their transgressive lifestyles and auto-generated identities. And so they think that Christianity is not responsive enough, not attentive enough to what they see as weak. And so Christianity and its traditional norms regarding sex, gender, and marriage are viewed as privileging the powerful and hindering the marginalized from fully living as themselves. But also they, they differ from Nietzsche in their relationship to morality. These progressive sexual identitarians don't want to live beyond good and evil. They want to rewrite morality so that broader society and the church affirm them in their way of life. They don't want to kill God. They want to pressure God and his representatives on earth to call them in their choices good. I think that's a key kind of distinction between the two. How do you explain the contradiction of relativism and moral absolutism within progressive ideology? Yeah, my thinking on that point that is very briefly mentioned is inspired by a very helpful little book by a professor at Patrick Henry College named Mark Mitchell. And the book is called Power and Purity. He sees in contemporary identitarian justice movements a combination of forces tracing back to both what he identifies, tracing back to Nietzsche and then the Puritans. And so that can be up for debate whether or not that genealogy is very accurate or helpful. But what it does do is show that there's kind of these internal contradictions and incoherences in this kind of amalgam. Nietzsche is kind of an inspiration for the moral relativism with this emphasis on the will to power, to exert oneself onto the world without conforming to anyone or anything else. But this seems to strangely, I think, link up with a sort of moral absolutism that is quite self-righteous, placing pretty strong demands on others. I think I shared a couple kind of pithy slogans that identify some of the tensions here, right? You hear things like, it's not just that these figures are trying to say, you know, affirm their truth, but they're also trying to get others to affirm the truth that they have espoused. And I think there's some incoherences here. And you can also see it in the slogans that I did share with statements like, who are you to judge, but also bake the cake, bigot? How does Obergefell affect traditional folks in their marriages to, you know, also you need to participate in that wedding. You don't really, really, really love your neighbor. So I think this isn't just live and let live relativism. Rather, I think what's happening is redefining of love. And I think there's some interesting things to explore about the tensions between that relativism kind of inspired maybe and similar to Nietzsche to that absolutism of imposing others to recognize and see things the way they do. Why do sexual identitarians demand affirmation? Well, first of all, because we all long to be affirmed, I think is what I'd start with. And I hope that this is the point that people don't miss from the piece, the pastoral and apologetic point. I think we need to see some of the the figures that we're engaging with are ideologues uh, and what my friend Joe Rigney calls sexual Pharisees. And with Pharisees, you don't accommodate or go soft on them. Those who present themselves as righteous moral authorities, but are false teachers by twisting scripture. So some, I think, of the progressive identitarians can be that. They can present themselves as more loving and right than traditional Christianity, than even the Bible itself. I think some of them aren't. aren't. They're not simply false teachers. They're confused and lost. And I think even much of their attempts to change the church's moral teachings on these matters, I think, can be understood in this light. Because I think Nietzsche's code for most is unbearable. Most cannot live beyond social and religious affirmation. And so I phrased it, right, that the emancipated still desperately long to be validated. And this is because I think we are religious and social creatures. We are not made to define reality, even ourselves. We need external sources, particularly God 
and his authorized representatives and other loved ones in our lives to tell us who we are and to tell us that we're good. We can't live without justification. You guys are good Lutherans. Justification. We, we long to have that word outside of us tell us who we are. And so, you know, these sexual revolutionaries, I think, sense deep down that they need religion and society to bless them. And many will not let go until they secure such blessing. So how does this need to be validated, figure into the progressive goal of subverting Christianity? Yeah, I tied this kind of uh, very briefly to a, one of Augustine's favorite concepts, the libido dominandi. I think these figures, I think one of the ways you could characterize it is that they lust to live beyond limits and yet at the same time are enslaved by the desire to secure the positive regard of others, to stamp out disapproval wherever it's found. And I think that it doesn't slay it. So Augustine's kind of talking about the libido. It's this lust to dominate that dominates us as well. The master proves himself to be a slave and trying to be a master and imposed his will on the world and on the opinions of others and all of this. So I think they struggle to let go when traditional Christianity fails to affirm their choices. And I think you can see this in the fact that there are many denominations where such persons could be completely affirmed and happy. And yet they continue to express hostility toward an attempt to transform those bodies that hold on to traditional moral teachings. So my question is, why can't they just stay in those other communities? Why do they need to transform the traditional ones that don't affirm them? Well, I think it's because they don't affirm them. And this is viewed as an unbearable evil. Christianity must change or an injustice is done to those claiming these identities. What would a new set of fundamental non-negotiables look like in the context of facing down sexual identitarianism? Yeah, and one of the ways I would, I would get into this is one of the things I've said for years about the century that we're in and the century that we'll see is in comparison to the last, which is many, uh, my main field actually is ecclesiology. That's mostly what I focus on in my research and writings. And many described the 20th century as the century of the church, where ecclesiology, as many might not know this, became really only an explicit field of dogmatic study late in the church's history. And I think largely, and you know, there weren't really a lot of explicit statements in the major creeds. And I think this is largely because the church was just assumed. It was just taken for granted. But then, as you know, in light of the great tensions within the church and the divisions, what the church is became under great contestation and dispute and led to lots of confusion and thus a need to continue to further explore, elucidate, and explicate what the church is. And I think in the 20th century, a lot of good came from that. Well, I've said for years that I think the 21st century is going to be the century of anthropology. The things that were for a long time, I think, largely assumed, taken for granted, and seemed to be obvious are now under great contestation and leading to lots of confusion, needing answers. And so questions like, what is a human person, particularly with reference to like the evil of abortion? What is a man? What is a woman? What is marriage? What is the relationship between marriage and childbearing and child rearing? Is it licit for couples to choose to be permanently childless? Or is it licit to commodify childbearing by renting rooms and buying children? What technologies at the beginning and end of life honor life as a gift that is not ours to discard? You know, with references to things like reproductive technology and medical assisted in dying, a big issue for us here in Canada. How should we relate to the givenness of our bodies with issues, you know, of gender identity and medical gender reassignment, especially related to minors? 
I am not arrogant enough to answer these on my own, especially in this short interview, but these are pressing fundamental questions that need clear answers and united witness as much as possible from as many traditional churches and Christian organizations as we can get to sign on and articulate these matters. And I, and I think that would be a witness and a service to our contemporary context. Dr. James Wood is Assistant Professor of Ministry at Redeemer University in Ancaster, Ontario, Canada, author of a recent column for World News Group titled The Battle We Face, Today's Conflicts Are Not About the Supernatural, But the Natural. You can read it at our website, issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. Dr. Wood, thank you. Thank you for having me. When we come back, we'll talk about a Pew Research Center report on the religious nuns with Dr. Mark Wood. This is Molly Hemingway, encouraging you to listen to my favorite podcast, Issues, etc. Every day you get in-depth interviews with host Todd Wilkin asking expert guests substantive, thought-provoking questions on all of the important news and issues of our day. The expert guests are in culture, law, ethics, philosophy, theology, and apologetics. Expert guests, expansive topics, always extolling Christ, Issues, etc. Psalm 144.1 Blessed be the Lord my rock who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. Those serving in the armed forces want LCMS chaplains. We need courageous pastors to bring the gospel and sacraments to those protecting our nation, along with wise counsel and the peace found only in Christ Jesus. If you are between the age of 26 and 43 and have a heart for ministry in the armed forces, call 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. Have you ever wanted a resource to share with first-time visitors of your congregation to help them understand why we worship the way we worship, why your church gathers the way they gather to receive our Lord's gifts? Pick up your copy of the January issue of The Lutheran Witness, which is The Divine Service, A User's Guide. To order a copy, visit cph.org witness or visit our website to learn more, witness.lcms.org. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Talk radio for the thinking Christian. You're listening to Issues Etc. At the center of our campus is Kramer Chapel, and there's a reason for that. Issues Etc. guest Dr. Arthur Just. Because it is the heartbeat of Concordia Theological Seminary. It is where we go to hear the voice of Jesus and frequently be fed with the body and blood of Christ. We sometimes call it our Jerusalem. Kramer Chapel points to the classroom, which we sometimes call Athens. It is there that we do theology, biblical studies, systematic theology, practical theology, history. We love theology here, and we love the study of it, and we love coming together in worship. It's one of the things that gives us great joy, joy in worshiping, joy in studying theology. Concordia Theological Seminary is all about the joy of being in Jesus. Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, ctsfw.edu.